You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another long-awaited episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. I am back from Florida, and I suppose I'm here to take my whooping. Yeah, you got one coming. You saw, I assume they still have Twitter in Florida, you saw how angry you made people. I did, yeah. And you know what? If Had I known everyone was going to get so mad because they are all so entitled to our weekly podcast, I probably would not have gone on any sort of family vacation or spent any time with my family at all. To hell with your family. This is your family now. Okay. This is the only family you need. Solid point. Yeah. Solid point. Uh, the other voice you hear, as you know, joining us as always, the other co-host for the Co-Main Event Podcast from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, what did you do with your Monday off last week? I sat around uh, a couple times. I, you know, I, I passed out and I woke up with a start thinking that you know, I had messed up and I was going to be responsible for you know, forgetting about the podcast uh-huh. and, and disappointing everybody. And then I realized, no. I'm here ready to do the damn thing. It's Chad Dundas who took an infant to Florida. You know, the real mistake that we made, I feel like, was not canceling one of the podcasts sooner. (laughs) Because then people came to expect that we actually would do it every week. You're saying we're a victim of our own consistency and lofty expectations we set for ourselves? Well, we were. Now people know that the podcast is going to get canceled. Yeah. On occasion. Yeah. Just like UFC 151. Exactly. It's the podcast it happens to the best. <laughs> anyway, uh, we've got a couple of things to try to make up for it. One of the one of those we'll talk about in a minute. The other is that this podcast will go to the championship rounds. We're going to do all five this week. In round one, we're going to talk about the Tough 16 finale, which happened this past weekend, during which two guys who weren't welterweights fought for the show's welterweight uh, title. The coaches didn't actually fight, and only two guys from the season appeared on the card, which leads everyone to ask, what exactly are we doing here? Mm-hmm. In round number two, as predicted by at least half of this podcast, okay. Ben Benson Henderson dominated Nate Diaz at UFC on Fox 5, and Ben Folks will face his comeuppance. <laughs> I've been dreading this comeuppance <laughs> so much. In round three, Ross Pearson versus George Sotoropoulos. Really? And in round four, UFC 158, WTF, when a litany of seemingly nonsensical welterweight matchups will be coming our way. And we're going to close things out in round five, as we so often do. We're going to get a little bit philosophical, kick our shoes off, pour a couple of scotches, and we're going to talk about whether or not the last 10 days in MMA represented everything that the UFC is doing right or wrong. So all that is coming your way. But first... At least one clerical note, uh, we are going to do the CME book club, as promised. Yeah, and I know people from people on Twitter are telling me, they're going out, they're picking up Bar Brawler, getting it on the old Kindle, ordering it through the mail, uh, and a, a lot of excitement out there to talk about the first in Tank Abbott's trilogy. Uh, featuring Before the, there were rules. Yeah, the, the exploits of one Walter Fox. With two X's, Walter Fox. Yeah. Amazing restraint on his part to only use two X's in the name. So here's what we're going to do for the co-main event book club. Uh, We're going to release it as a special episode to try to 
pay some penance toward you, the fan, for the episode that we missed last week. Yeah, we're not going to have it replace one of the usual episodes. We'll still do all that stuff. We're gonna we're gonna give this one a little something extra special to make up for Chad completely fucking up last week's episode by spending time with his family. Uh, you know, we're not like Dana White, who's like, oh, if something went wrong, I'm going to make it up to the fans. And then he just hopes that you'll forget about it. No, we are actually making it up to the fans with a special supplemental episode. And I'm going to say right now, it's preferable if you read at least part of Bar Brawler to, to appreciate what we're talking about here. But even if you haven't, I have a feeling you're going you're gonna to enjoy this episode all the same. We have thoughts, numerous thoughts about Bar Brawler. So here's the deal. Uh, we are going to record that episode on Monday, January 7th, and it will be out for your listening enjoyment on Wednesday, January 9th, which will be one day after that week's regularly scheduled Co-Main Event podcast comes out. So you, the listener who's at home reading Bar Brawler, <laughs> oh man, I hope you are, uh, uh, read the book and then email us your comments to the, the way you normally send questions to the show. And, you know, we will, we will take those comments, we'll take some excerpts and we'll, we will read them on the air during the book club. I think we're also going to have Sir Nigel Longstock come in and do some dramatic readings oh, yeah. from the text. Oh, that's happening for sure. Uh, and so it should be a lot of fun. I think it'll be an, an hour-long special episode, and we hope to hear from a lot of you. Yeah, we uh, welcome your theories. Uh, your, you know, There are a lot of questions to be asked about the, the fictive world represented in Bar Brawler, the, the world of Happening Beach, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's plenty for, for you to send in for discussion topics that we can all get into. Uh, and, you know, since we're doing it uh, a couple weeks after Christmas, I'm just saying if you want to ask your family members, force them to screw up their Amazon recommendations by buying a copy of Bar Brawler for you, put that bad boy under the Christmas tree, then you know you can jump in and, and enjoy this without having to actually give Tank Abbott your personal money. Or you could do like I did and just put it on your wife's Kindle. You sly son of a bitch. Oh man, I can't wait till she finds out about that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, this today we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so let's do a little bit of listener mail before we get in, in, involved in the rounds. The first week this or the first question this week comes from Joseph Curacina. Subject line of his email: BJ Penn retort. Joseph asks, how do you wonder if B... Oh, I guess we should say this. He's coming back at us for something we... A conversation we had about BJ Penn on the last episode. He also seems to be coming back at us for a conversation he imagines that we had. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, How do you wonder if BJ Penn is, is even in the conversation for greatest of all time when you correctly pointed out that he is the best lightweight of all time, one of only two multi-division champs, has quote-unquote magic, and he accomplished all of that while somehow simultaneously being, quote, talent not fully realized, and quote, just didn't do the work in the gym. Isn't that an additional argument that he is one of the best of all time? I think when people reminisce about BJ, we'll see his pre-fight condition take a deep backseat to his in-cage accomplishments. Will we, we will see BJ Penn in the meaningless UFC Hall of Fame, and he will be considered one of the greatest of all time, and then in parentheses, of an era, period, discuss, yeah. period. <laughs> this is a real, uh, you know, stereotypical podcast question in a lot of ways. First of all, I want to know, who the fuck are you quoting? Who's the, who, who was yeah, the, who I would quote? have to go back and listen to the tape. So maybe Joe, Joseph. Did magic? 
Maybe I don't know. I don't. I thought that was odd. Maybe we did say that. I, I, but it seems to me, and you know, this happens more often than you might think, <laughs> that people email us with concerns or or they want to uh, uh, advance their own theory about a conversation that it only seems like we kind of had. Yeah, like they're sort of extrapolating other things from it. I mean, we did have a conversation about BJ Penn that touched on some of these themes. Uh, the quotes, though, don't seem to be directly referencing anything we actually said. Uh, okay, but there is a point somewhere in here uh, before we get around to the command discuss uh, at the end that, okay, maybe because of BJ Penn's, because of what he accomplished despite uh, not seeming like he was trying his hardest all the time, maybe that makes him somehow more impressive. No, no. Kind of like a no, Mickey Mantle No, 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 no. Being lazy cannot go on your resume as as a, a, a as a plus for being one of the greatest of all time. It just cannot. I cannot think, be. But it's like we do do this thing, and, and maybe not necessarily with being lazy, but uh, like the Mickey Mantle thing, where it's like you know, imagine how awesome he would have been if he wasn't hung over half the time. Imagine if he hadn't been an alcoholic, how great a baseball player he would have been. That kind of stuff. We do that that in other sports where it's like, hey, imagine if this dude took it seriously 100% of the time and he'd be even better. Uh, I do think for some people, maybe that's part of the appeal of BJ Penn. It makes him a little more relatable. Uh, but when you know he talks about greatest lightweight of all time, I look around, I'm trying to name a guy who had you know m- greater accomplishments at lightweight it's tough. No, I BJ's think pro- probably number one still. I, the, I mean, Frank Yeager's the only other guy that you'd think might even be able to challenge him for that title. The problem is that the, it, it came in like bursts for BJ Penn, it, partly because he didn't want to stay around and compete at lightweight that much. So it was like a two-year span there where he was awesome at lightweight. And even then, he'd go up and you know fight Walter Wade and, and stuff like that when he, when he got the notion like kind of a victim of his own ambition in, in some ways that, and then now finds himself wondering like, well, why aren't they talking about me more as the greatest lightweight? Well, because that wasn't enough for you. You know, when you could have, when you could have stuck around and just completely decimated uh, the ranks at lightweight and really established that that's when you really wanted to go play at welterweight. So that's what happens maybe, but All yeah, right. well, slightly. and we should say Joseph has a point. He's definitely a shoe in for the UFC hall of fame. And, and yeah, he's definitely one. He's definitely probably the greatest lightweight of all time. Uh, let's do one yeah. more question. Give, give him his cut glass trophy. We're, we're running a little long here. Uh, this one comes from Jared Crowley. If you could eliminate any rule from the unified rules of MMA, what would it be? And why, if you could add a rule that is not covered by the unified rules of MMA, what would it be? And why should I read what what his are? Sure. Uh, this is from Jared Crowley. My answers are to allow knees to the head of a downed opponent to eliminate these ridiculous three-point stances some of the fighters put themselves in. The rule I would add would be no foot stomps allowed. They look lame, and there are a lot of small bones on the top of the foot that could be broken, although I don't think I've ever seen or heard of a foot stomp that actually worked. Mike Swick told me he had a bone in his foot broken, I believe, by Chris Lieben stomping him uh, in their sure. WEC fight. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I You're think my biggest win, Mike. <laughs> Remember that? Yes. Um, I think also what he said that was that Chris Levin stomped on his foot and and broke a bone in it, but not enough to really affect them in the fight, just to kind of be annoying. Uh, and he really, got, Mike Swick really got mad and was like, 
bull, what, foot stomps are such a bullshit thing. I would never foot stomp anyone. And then, to his eternal shame, he was in a fight sometime later and was clinched up against the cage with somebody. And that dude's corner shouted, foot stomp. And before he could stop himself, just ref, like reflexively, uh, Mike Swick foot stomped the dude. Hmm. I can't remember who it was. And then he said as soon as he did it, he was like, oh, no, I've become what I hate. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. You know, in answer to the question, though, I say the rule I remove is that you can put just your hand down on the mat and be considered a downed opponent. Sometimes, like, two fingers down on the mat, and yeah. suddenly you're, you're a downed opponent, yeah. and the dude can't knee you. Uh, I kind of backed off on my stance that I want to see knees on the, to the head of a grounded opponent, um, but I do think we should change that definition of what makes you a grounded opponent. You should have to have at least one knee on the mat. Uh, the rule that I add... And this, this is a little something inspired by you, Chad Dundas, mm-hmm. and inspired by Pat Barry this weekend. If you grab the fence to avoid a takedown, automatic point deduction. Not, we'll warn you once, and then we'll miss it the next time you do it. And none of that bullshit, because there's no such thing as accidentally grabbing the fence. You know the rule going in. You, you only break that rule on purpose. So let's act. I mean, again, you know, like you say, always cheat in MMA. Because even if Pat Barry had been deducted a point, that fight ended in the second round. So it's not like you could have deducted 10 points. It wouldn't have mattered. Um, like, you know, you, you are right about that. But still, since there's no such thing as an accidental fence grab, let's go ahead and like codify that into the rules so that we're actually doing something about it rather than just like, you know, warning them about something they know full and well is wrong when they're doing it. Yeah. Um, you stole my thunder a little bit, but I think the rule that I would add, which is sort of, I guess, a clarification more than anything else, is that I would like to see a more specific and uh, more uh, even-handed sort of way that for fouls to be uh, adjudicated across yeah. the board. I think that I would like to see it be that if you commit a foul at all, no matter if you meant to do it or you just did it the first time or whatever, you would suffer some sort of penalty. Because as it stands now, that it leaves the, way too much in the hands of the referee to determine, like, did the guy mean to do it, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So I would just say take the, uh, take the power sort of out of the hands of the referee and just make it either a mandatory point deduction or some other kind of... Uh, I love, I'm intrigued by this some other kind of penalty. Well, like yeah, you, I, you kick a dude in the balls and he gets to kick you in the balls, like the Josh Barnett uh, thing. Well, I, technically, I got off a plane about an hour ago, so I haven't fully thought this through. <laughs> or maybe, but, okay, you kick a dude in the balls, and then you have to listen to Joe Rogan's spiel about why they should all buy a certain type of cup? <laughs> yes, yeah. Because that's our penalty at home, watching it on TV. All right, well, we've gone on way too long. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one right now. Ben, we've discussed at great length on this program the the inherent on, and ongoing problems with the Ultimate Fighter, uh, most specifically about its its form and its its formula. That it seems stale, at least to me. I think you agree with me. Yes. After uh, uh, sixteen seasons, and that that maybe the the show itself needs a facelift. But I think some other problems might have come to the fore. Again, this past weekend during the Tough 16 finale, when Colton Smith defeated Mike Ricci for the uh, for the the Tough 16 crown at welterweight, uh, came out in the in the days following that both those guys are probably going to cut to lightweight. That's not really that unusual, but it still sort of raises the question: Man, we're trying to put together a welterweight tournament for this fucking thing, and we can't find 16 welterweights for it. <laughs> 
and the two guys who advance to the finale aren't welterweights, which kind of makes the other welterweights in the tournament seem shitty. <laughs> wow, you're getting worked up. I love it. Also, uh, worth noting that of what, like the 16 guys on there, uh, the UFC already has washed its hands of 12 of them. Uh, they're not even going to... It used to be that the guys who were on the season, as long as you weren't absolutely terrible, they'd at least give you a shot. You know, you get a fight on the finale. You know, you get a chance to prove that when you got to go home and use your own training camp and not have to do the, the reality show bullshit that, that you were, you know, a good UFC caliber fighter. And now the UFC has basically just said at the end of this show, okay, almost all of these guys are not UFC caliber. Which does make you wonder, like, are we just doing so many seasons of tough that there is not enough decent fighters to feed it anymore and so now we're taking to just openly taking bad fighters just to make the, the the few good ones look even better and just to keep churning out reality tv content yeah and i mean i i watched most of this season and the, they did have some clowns i mean some clowns showed up for this season <laughs> but in general i think that you're right i think that the show itself over the last few years has become less and less viable in terms of, of cranking out good contenders like actual you know guys who go on to become uh contributing members of the ufc especially when when you think about that first season which i guess i think is a little bit of an unfair example but man that first season was just stacked you you know with yeah. forrest the- griffin and, and diego sanchez and then you know josh koscheck chris lieben Kenny Florian, tons of dudes. John Kenny. Fish didn't make the show. You yeah. Know? Like they, you have a bunch of those kind of stories from the early seasons of guys who uh, could have been on the show and weren't for one reason or another. I mean, but then, yeah, at the time, there were so many good fighters to choose from and so many guys willing to do anything to get in the UFC. So, yeah, that, of course, they're going to jump at that chance. Now, you look at, like, just in 2012 alone, if you count the, the UFC in Brazil, uh, there are now six Ultimate Fighter winners this year. Jesus. Winners. Jesus. Yeah, you got the, the smashes and all that stuff. Six of them this year alone. And last year, I think there were three. You know, and now we're talking about more and more like international tough franchises. You know, you're going to go to India. You're going to go Philippines, whatever. You can do it all over the place. You just, there can't be that many fighters to keep up with that demand. There just yeah. can't. Yeah, well, and, and since you just said that, and it just sort of dawned on me. I guess if you're going to keep six tough winners on the roster from this year, the sheer numbers probably dictate that you can't keep very many of the guys who did not win. Yeah, I, I guess so. Which I, I, I would just guess, would if that's going to be the new normal in terms of the ultimate fighter, would probably make guys who are better fighters n- not really want to be on the show as much. Yeah. No, there's a lot of reasons I can see why if you feel like you're a good enough fighter that like hey the UFC can't ignore me because uh, I'm just going to keep beating the shit out of people on local shows that are shown on you know access TV on Friday night or something then and eventually the UFC will call like you're going to get a better contract that way probably I mean you won't get that same uh, little like popularity push that you get uh, being on the ultimate fighter that probably makes it easier to get sponsors and you know people know you you, you show up in the UFC with something like a name um, but I mean, for one thing, if Ultimate Fighter ratings are going to stay as low as they have, then maybe not that many people know you to begin with just for being on the show. Also, though, the guys who come in on those Ultimate Fighter contracts, as we hear over and over again, those are not great deals for them. I mean, they're, they're like one step up from indentured MMA servants. Yeah, well, um, I know that you wanted to talk about Mad Mitrione. 
who ended up getting knocked out by Roy Nelson in the in the uh, the the main event of this show, uh, which kind of makes some of the the pre-fight postulating that we did about Mitrion setting stepping into an advantageous situation seem moot. Yeah, now. You a know little what? bit. I mean, he's not going to get cut or anything. They'll probably give him the benefit of the doubt for stepping out on short notice, but. It yeah, still well, doesn't look as great as it did going in. Right. Well, I mean, I still think, you know, if you just think about it from a decision-making perspective, if you, when you don't know the outcome, this was still a better idea than taking that Daniel Cormier fight would have been. He had a better chance to win this one, I think. And he was doing pretty good. And he then, was doing And good, then yeah. he got clipped, you know. Uh, Roy Nelson, he, he doesn't look like, you know, like he can hit that hard, but damn, he, he hits you. That looks like it hurts. So, yeah. The thing, though, that was interesting to me was some of the points Matt Mitrione made uh, before the fight, talking about Roy Nelson trying to get him to do uh, VADA testing, uh, and Matt Mitrione wasn't going to do it. And he made this point, and I wonder how intentional some of this, like he he realized exactly what he was saying. Uh, But in, I believe it was a radio interview with MMA Weekly, here's what he said about how, where he basically takes the Ken Shamrock route saying, well, of course, guys are doing steroids because you, the public, you want this, whether you can admit it openly or not. Um, here's this quote. Everybody wants to see a Todd Duffy. Nobody wants to see Roy for the most part. You want to see a chiseled Adonis. You don't want to see a big-bellied, big pale, furry beast. We're modern-day gladiators. We fight in spandex and everything else. And it's like, if you know what you want, then sometimes you can't bust everybody's balls for giving you what you want. If you want your cake and eat it too, then you're not going to have that good-looking cake. It may taste good, but it's not going to look nearly as good if you could use eggs instead of egg beaters. Okay, first of all... Yeah, I know you want to talk about the metaphor. <laughs> he doesn't understand what the have your cake and eat it too metaphor. That He doesn't understand what that means. That's that's pretty evident. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a curious aside. But you're also right. That sure does make it seem like he's saying, well, guys are using steroids and, and here's why. Yeah. And the thing is, though, where he's saying, like, well, people want to see Todd Duffy. They don't want to see Roy Nelson. I actually don't want to see Todd Duffy. Well, I would actually watch Roy Nelson before well, I, I watch I do Todd want, Duffy. I'm interested to see how Todd Duffy does uh, in his return. No, that's but, true. I, I do want to see Todd Duffy, yes. but I want to see Roy Nelson more. But the thing is, why were you in a, a main event on cable TV, Matt Mitrione? Because you were fighting Roy Nelson. It's not because it was, like, Matt Mitrione that was driving that, that main event. People do want to see Roy Nelson. I think he's overestimating the extent to which people, like, he's saying this is what people want. But the the facts of how they got there directly refute his point. Yeah. I think he is he's definitely underestimating the extent that we want to see good fighters. Yeah, we want to see good fight and that's kind of the thing that makes Roy Nelson like stand out is because he does not look like those normal guys, but he is a good fighter. If he did not look like those norm- those other guys, if he looked like he looked and he was a shitty fighter, then nobody would care. Like it's that he he looks like he looks different, he has a whole different kind of appeal. And he beats the shit out of people, as he did to Matt Mitrione. That's the that's the thing. It's not that people want to see chiseled Adonises. They want to see dudes who can fight, and that's what Roy Nelson is. Like the events of the weekend are, are stand in direct like opposition to the point Matt Mitrione seemed to think he was making. Also, what the fuck, the cake egg beaters? What are you talking about? Yeah, the tortured. Fuck are you that's, just, about? that's just a tortured metaphor there at the end. It, yeah, and not that's not the quote that you want hanging around in the aftermath of getting knocked out by Roy Nelson either no. because you kind of just did get knocked out by the, the furry beast, the pale furry beast that no one wants to see, according to you. Also, what is up with Roy Nelson trying to claim? Like, I don't know. I only started learning how to strike a couple of years ago. Come on, man. 
Yeah, Come that, on. that I, I don't know if I buy that, but it did, no. it's, uh, well, if anything, it seemed like maybe Joe Rogan was complicit in that, yeah. in that uh, possible falsehood, I guess we'll call it. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember Roy when he was in the IFL. Trust me, he was definitely doing some striking and training. He wasn't showing up the night of the fight and going like, well, I've seen people throw punches, so uh, how hard could it be? I mean, you know, I'm not saying nobody has ever, Matt Lindland uh, did that uh, he said when he first started MMA because he was like well I know how to wrestle and I've punched people before so uh, you know hey I'll just I'll go there and we'll see what happens I mean Matt Lindland is the type of dude and in that era where I believe yes he showed up without throwing perhaps a single punch in practice Roy Nelson no way yeah and it was yet another installment of the ultimate fighter that failed to produce a coach versus coach matchup of course the night before we saw a coach versus coach matchup between uh, Ross Pearson and, and George Sotaropoulos, that kind of made you wonder if we really want the coaches to fight or not. But we will talk about that <laughs> yes, we will. a little bit later in the show. For now, we're going to go ahead and move on to round number two, which starts right now. Round two. Okay, Chad, let's just put this out there right at the top. Your prediction about what would happen in the Benson Henderson Nate Diaz fight at the UFC on Fox event in Seattle was totally right. Mine was totally wrong. We weren't supposed to get into doing predictions and bullshit like that anyway, but we did, and you won. You son of a bitch. You were right. Well, that's it for round number two. Let's now go. Now that we know this, now that we know that Benson Henderson went in there and took apart Nate Diaz pretty much exactly in the fashion that you said he would, put an ass whipping on a qualified lightweight contender and firmly established himself as the UFC lightweight champ, is this guy growing on you any? Well, let's talk about the toothpick. Well, I guess, I guess we might as well. Because I think the toothpick... Uh, speaks volumes in a way here about both Ben Henderson's likability and marketability. Market marketability. Um, I think, like as it uh, pertains to the casual fan, the the mythical, you know, as yet unverified casual fan that we're They're all supposed there. to be They're just, out there in droves, just, wandering the hills and packs that we're all supposed to be so damn concerned with all the time. I guess if you didn't watch a lot of MMA and you like saw a picture of that on the internet or heard about this guy that fought with a toothpick in his mouth, you might think that that was pretty cool and maybe that would... Uh, you'd, you'd click through. Yeah, you might want to watch Ben Henderson the next time he, he shows up to fight the next time around. But um, I, I have a feeling that that kind of, in, in terms of like the hardcore fan, the guy who watches a lot of MMA, I have a feeling that that might like, turn them off. I don't know why exactly I think that, but it just seems like a little cocky in a way that that longtime hardcore fans of the sport would resent more than think was awesome i wouldn't regard it as cocky i just regard it as nate diaz did as weird as nate diaz said when they asked him in the press conference hey what do you think if he really did fight the entire fight with a toothpick in his mouth and nate was like i don't know if he did or not but that's weird it is weird and if in anything like it just it kind of makes me feel like ben benson henderson is more interesting than i thought he was uh, because weird does equal interesting. And if that's just such a, a bizarre thing. Like, and it's not a thing that I think he's doing because he wants us to look at him and go, hey, that's weird. He seems a little bit embarrassed that we're seizing on it and focusing on it. Like he would rather we didn't know that he was fighting with a toothpick in his mouth. Uh, the whole thing is just 
Like, I don't know what drives a person. Like, I don't know why you would love toothpicks so much that you couldn't have one out of your mouth for 25 minutes. Well, remember when we saw him at the open workout in uh, in uh, California when we went to the UFC gym? It was right before he fought Clay Guida, I think, yeah. at that event. Uh, and he did his entire open workout with a toothpick in his mouth. And we even thought that was weird. And during that, no one was trying to punch him back. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure about the the medical ramifications of getting punched with a toothpick in your mouth, but I suppose it seems like it would be less comfortable than getting punched with one, without one. Yeah, I just don't understand why you would do it unless you had developed some kind of weird compulsion that you couldn't be without one. I mean, I guess I'm just going to say the obvious. Does Benson Henderson make love with a toothpick in his mouth? Does Benson Henderson perform oral sex with a toothpick in his mouth. <laughs> you know. That's, uh, that's unsafe. <laughs> that, is, that is a serious problem if he does that. And I, I mean, if he's going to fight for a goddamn UFC title on network TV with a toothpick in his mouth, no way he's not performing oral sex with that thing in there. Unsafe. You know, I've heard about guys getting addicted to, like, uh, uh, chapstick. You know, they can't, they have to so you've put heard about chapstick that, huh? on all the time. Happened to a friend of yours? <laughs> yeah, he only will perform oral oral sex when he's put chapstick <laughs> on his lips. Now it's it's the craziest thing I've ever heard about from a friend, a distant friend that I'm not that close with. in Canada. Yeah, okay, but I think the, the picture, the, the Benson Henderson portrait is starting to become a little... A little more complex, a little more complete for us. Well, yeah, and let's talk also about the weird. You wrote a, a thing about it on MMA Junkie, but like he yelled at the reporters like yeah. after the fight. He did. He came right over to us, and the decision hadn't been announced yet. Uh, but he he came right over uh, to. It was not his corner. His corner was on the other side of the cage, and he came over to the fence um, to yell at us on press row to say that I don't talk. It's in here. Do you guys get that? Um, which, no, we're not going to get that because that's our entire job is to try and get you to talk before and after. Yeah, does he mean that he's not going to talk shit or like that he d fully just does not want to talk to the media in his position as UFC lightweight champion? He does not seem to enjoy talking to the media. Uh, he's, the, you know, the, Who hey, does? Gonna... I don't enjoy talking to the media. <laughs> the whole, like, I'm not going to talk shit. They find, you know. Uh, doesn't mean we're not gonna we're gonna stop asking you questions. He seems to have this kind of contentious thing with the media, and it was even in the press conference when uh, people would ask him like, well, "Who do you think should be next? Who do you think should get the next crack at the lightweight title?" And he'd say, "You know, I don't care. I want light them all up. I want to fight them all. Uh, you know, whoever the UFC decides, I'll, I'll fight that person." And then somebody followed up with, "Well, how about Gilbert Melendez? Do you think that he deserves an immediate shot at it uh, coming over to the UFC?" A legitimate question, and he's like, "I don't know how many more times I could say it." You know, I, and it's like, okay. Well, that's weird, though, because don't you think, like, when he first showed up on the scene, I thought that he seemed really affable. And, like, yeah, he didn't seem to, like, when we would do scrums with him or something, he didn't seem like he was dreading it. It seemed no. like he was actually pretty good at it. Well, I think the more you have to do it, uh, that has a tendency to change your perspective on it. I think there's also a thing that happens with a lot of fighters where maybe they misinterpret what the media's role is, um, and that leads to a kind of disillusionment. I remember Stefan Bonner saying once about Forrest Griffin, uh, basically explaining why Forrest Griffin was such a dick to the media, uh, saying like, well, you know, he felt like these people would just, you know, when he lost or when he did poorly, these people turned on him uh, and, or, you know, and just talked shit on him. So, you know, he doesn't need them anyway. He, he's famous enough as it is that he doesn't need to do a whole bunch of media stuff. And it's like, if you're thinking of it in those terms of turning on you, 
then you're thinking about it in the wrong terms. Like the, the media's responsibility is not to like pump you up or knock you down. It's to try and give an honest take of what's happening. And I think a lot of fighters, and maybe they get used to it, like treated by some media in this kind of like fawning fashion where they give an interview and then, you know, we're just going to take the most positive angle possible and write it up. Like it's basically a, a press release. Um, and, you know, you see some websites that'll do that for the guys. And then when they encounter some that won't, uh, it's like a shock to them. Like, what the hell's wrong with these people? I mean, I, I think some of that it is as they get more experience with it, uh, they start to feel like, hey, wait a minute, fuck these guys, which I, I can understand how you might feel that way as a fighter. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean we're going to stop asking you quite. It's not everybody's going to be like, well, Benson Henderson doesn't like talking, so uh, we'll just sit here quietly for the next 20 minutes at this <laughs> press conference, and nobody will ask me. Like, no, that's our job. We're still going to try and get you to talk, so no, we are not going to get that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's weird. I had not put that together, but I did. A co- I remember a couple months ago seeing that Mac Danzig had posted something on Twitter about how like, some journalist had written a, a quote-unquote hit piece about him and about how that really let him know who his friends were, he said. Which made me, you know, that's just like you got to sigh and shake your head. Yeah, just well, like, they're not just, your friends. Yeah, to start with, if they're a reporter, they're not your friend. And they shouldn't, and, and reporters should learn that too, that fighters are not your friends. That, you know, you can like some dudes and have a, a friendly relationship with them, but you are not friends. Yeah, and the reason that I bring it up now is that Ben Henderson had retweeted it. So maybe there's huh. a connection there. He's yeah. probably mad about some hit piece you wrote about him. Yeah, well... I, I do sit around here uh, writing toothpick, toothpick-based hit pieces on dudes. So my expose on whether he performs oral sex with that toothpick is really—it's oh, it's, going to blow some minds out there. Sometimes I feel like it is your stated goal to creep me out while we're doing this. <laughs> I wouldn't say stated goal, but it's a—it's definitely a. Well, bonus. yeah, you're not going to shy away from it. I know that from experience. No. Well, now, once I see that something creeps you out, then I'm like, okay, let's just keep hammering that point. Yeah, well, now that I'm totally just off my feed, I guess we'll go ahead and and move into round number three, unless there's anything else you want to talk about here. I heard that some primitive tribes in the Philippines would actually prefer it if you performed oral sex. All right, well, that's that's about it. We'll go ahead and move into round number three, which starts right now. Round three. Well, Ben, when I explained to my wife the night of the tough Australia versus UK live finale, who was fighting and why they were fighting, Ross Pearson and, and George Sotoropoulos, because they had been the coaches on the season of that show, my wife, who I suppose you might say is the casual MMA fan, she's the one we're supposed to be so concerned about this whole time, Oh God! looked at me and said, wow. Well, that's a, who, a huge lump of who cares. And then walked, out, walked out of the room. Oh, she, that was a walk-off line? Yeah, she took it walking away. Wow. And then we see George Sotoropoulos come out with his old man body and his face pounded flat. And he kind of gets worked by Ross Pearson. Yeah. Leading me to wonder, do we really need to do this? Like, do we really need to have all of these ultimate fighters and by God, do they have to be on American TV for the finale? 
<laughs> oh, you're saying this would be fine if you just if you keep it off American as TV. As long as my wife doesn't find out about it, it's fine. Well, no, it actually did make me wonder, why do both of these shows, one night after the other, couldn't you, I don't know, put them together? Yeah, no, that was weird to me too. Especially because if you had put them together, you'd have had an awesome fight card. Uh, with the undercard fights that they had there, that would have been one awesome fight card. Instead of having it back-to-back where you're just basically telling... Uh, the people who really want to consume the UFC's product, like, get comfortable on the couch, assholes, because you're going to be here all weekend. You're watching 10 hours of MMA and sitting through the same commercials over and over again. It is weird that just the fact that they are the coaches, like, okay, that justifies um, why this is a main event fight. Because when you look at where those two dudes were in their career at the time of this fight, that doesn't really seem main event quality stuff there, right? No, once again, it's another situation where we take a fight that would be a perfectly good first fight on a pay-per-view and make it the main event on this needless show that didn't have to be there and didn't have to be its own thing, for God's sake. (laughs) You seem pretty worked up about this. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at, like, Ross Pearson is doing the whole win one, lose one thing and has been for a couple years now. Uh, Sotoropoulos had dropped two straight, now three straight after he gets knocked out. Also, I guess we should mention, uh, you talked about George Sotoropoulos' old man body. I mean, he always kind of had a little bit of that going on. He does seem to have aged very rapidly lately um, and did not look like he was taking a punch well against Ross Pearson. And then we hear afterwards Ross Pearson say that one of his coaches knocked out George Sotoropoulos on the set, off camera, when they got into it, and uh, Sotoropoulos punched him, and then the coach fired back and knocked him out. I mean, how many knockouts has this dude taken? He's taken secret knockouts? All right, I'll be honest with you. Before I even before I even knew about the secret knockout, I was already, I woke up the next morning worried about George Sotoropoulos' brain. Because how <laughs> I many... I miss you just sitting straight up in bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, while I was watching it, I was... It, it was one of those things that, you know, really made you question... Like, what kind of thing we're watching, what kind of sport we're watching, because it seemed like George Sotoropoulos probably suffered three or four minor brain traumas in the course of his <laughs> one fight that probably ultimately didn't need to happen. Yeah, it was one of those. And this is the thing I used to say about that MMA was better than boxing in that because right, yeah. you'd see a boxing match plenty of times where one dude is just faster or, or technically better than the other guy. Um, and, you know, he's beating him up in the first and second rounds. But because of the nature of boxing and the knockdowns and the larger gloves and everything, that is going to take a few more rounds before the whole thing is finally settled. And that's going to be way more punishment. And MMA doesn't have that because of the little gloves and that you go down, the dude pounces on you and usually ends it uh, before he, the damage has a chance to pile up. And this was one where that didn't happen. He got dropped a few times, looked, did, did, a, did a few different stanky legs, uh, and then finally got knocked off his damn feet. And it was like, yeah, he. you saw that one coming very early on and it just took a while to get there and he took a bunch of needless damage in the process yeah well one guy i think i can categorically say is not on steroids (laughs) george sotoropoulos because he kind of seems like he has grown old at the age when an athlete is supposed to grow old he's like 35 years old yeah and he shows up in the cage looking like he's 35 years old as you pointed out when we were talking about this earlier two years younger than mike Pyle who is uh, like like a phoenix rising from the damn ashes. Yeah, he's never looked better, as they said on the UFC pay-per-view. Except for his haircut. This past, this past week. Well, and, and the thing about the story about 
Soderopolis getting knocked out in training. I can't decide if I want more for that not to have happened or if I want more for it to have happened. Because, hey, it's an awesome story. It is an awesome story. <laughs> but, like, to get knocked out on the set of The Ultimate Fighter by someone else's assistant coach, that's just way too sad, man. <laughs> Although, I suppose, pretty good confidence builder if you're Ross Pearson. Yeah, yeah, I guess when you have that and you're like, okay, and what, we're going to, this dude and I are going to fight in a couple months after this? Okay. You know, call up your friends, uh, whatever they, Ross Pearson and his friends say, lay a, lay a quid, lay a tenor or a... I don't know, man. You're lay a couple quid on me. Just go down to the ad libbing on the me bookies. Here. I'm not sure. Uh, but are, so here's the question: Are they going to do this for all the toughs? Is there going to be like obviously they're going to do this for all the toughs? Pakistan and they're going to throw that on FX one night without telling well, anybody. Tough, tough Pakistan versus India is uh, <laughs> that one. That one is going to be electric, my man. Uh, you know, and I think we got a question. Uh, in the, the listener mail this week where somebody was kind of asking that, like, hey, wait a minute. Aren't you telling us at the same time, UFC, that uh, there's no real MMA scene in India right now, that you're going to break into India and kind of build it up, um, but that the people there are into it, they just don't have it yet. And yet at the same time, you're going to tell us you're going to do like an ultimate fighter there when you just told us that the people there aren't really, they're not really doing this yet. Like, how bad a quality of fighter are you willing to put on and justify it as, well, hey, it's the ultimate fighter. It's a tryout. You know, that that is kind of a legitimate question to me, especially if you start setting up these ultimate fighter franchises, you know, globally, where some countries just, they might not have the MMA scene at the same level yet. I don't know if people are really, you can mold some viewpoints via reality TV editing, but I don't know how much, how low the bar can go and you can still get people to, to feel like, these are fights worth being on TV. Maybe Julian Lane can win the Ultimate Fighter India. It's a it's a joke about the guy with the pink mohawk who's on this. That's funny. Season of the That's a funny joke. Ultimate Fighter. Huh. Season sixteen. Huh. Anyway, uh <laughs> I don't know where we're going after that. Um it just seems to exacerbate the problem. We thought already that that they were doing too many shows and they were spread too thin and they were taking fights like Soderopoulos Pearson off pay-per-view and putting them onto these shows and and it just seems like they're they're just going to be more and more and more well, for, the, for the rest of time. We can't honestly we we cannot sit here and complain Hey, with Roy Nelson and Shane Carwin, the coaches didn't even fight at the end. So what the hell is the point? And then also complain at the end of the Ross Pearson, George Soderopoulos season, the coaches fought. What the hell, man? <laughs> like that's that is that is a bullshit move on our part. We should we should say that. We should admit that up front. True, but it's still how we feel. I I mean I feel like when you have a one where like the John Jones Chael Sonnen thing, and it's like okay if. If the fight feels like something that people would want to watch without a reality season, you know, I think you would say that about Roy Nelson, Shane Carwin. That Mm -hmm. was one I would have wanted to watch, even if you didn't spend just, what, like eight months of reality TV, at least that's what it feels like, building up to it. Uh, Then we want to see the coaches fight. When you try to take a fight that would otherwise just be another middle-of-the-card quality bout, and but suddenly it's a main event status because of just how long we've spent promoting it and listening to these guys yell at each other in, in a variety of accents. You know, that's when it starts to feel like 
you're stretching the power of this promotional vehicle too far. Yeah, and one of the problems with Soderopolis versus Pearson, I think, was that not only does it start to feel like they're scraping the bottom of the barrel for fighters, you know, when very few guys seem to be making the cut after Tough 16, but, like, when you throw those two guys in as coaches on, on, I guess, the first season of Tough in Australia, it it seems, A, really random. Like, they just needed... A guy from Australia. And yes, a that, guy, that is what they needed. <laughs> and a guy who who was, I guess, from the British Empire in some way. Uh, and it feels like, you know, those are two guys that aren't going to, at least not here. Maybe maybe this was different in Australia, but are two guys that that aren't going to, you know, drive much traffic or aren't, they're not going to create much buzz, I don't think, which seems like a problem to me. And I, I don't know. Do you need the coaches of the Ultimate Fighter Australia to be Australian? At least one of them. Yes. You think so? Yes. Isn't it enough well, if the fighters are from Australia? No. You can't send Dan Henderson down there. Not that he would ever do that, but... <laughs> no, no. I think that if you're going to do the whole the thing where the whole team is broken up on lines of nationality, then yeah, you gotta, you got to have the coaches. Come on. Yeah. All right. Don't be stupid. So we're going to get our, our two guys from India going to be the coaches on Ultimate Fighter India? I don't even want to think about what's going to happen with the Ultimate Fighter <laughs> India, to tell you the truth. Well, lucky for you, we'll, have, we'll get to watch it ourselves. It's the Ultimate the Fighter f- Canary Isles. All right. Well, that's it for round number three. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number four right now. Jed, UFC 158 in March is starting to take shape, and the good news is pretty much all the best welterweights in the UFC, are, they all are on it together. Uh-huh, yes. In one building. So like a battle royal, <laughs> you mean? If, if only. Well, who knows? A, a Diaz brother is scheduled to be in t- attendance, so I wouldn't rule out a battle royal. Anything could happen. The bad news is the matchmaking seems to be... A little bit on the confusing side, because yeah. here we have George St. Pierre, welterweight champion, uh-huh. fighting Nick Diaz, who is coming off a loss and a suspension. Yes. Then we have the guy who looks like he has earned the number one contender status, Johnny Hendricks, and he's fighting Jake Ellenberger. Then, you know, you also got Roy McDonald and, and Carlos Condit doing it again, brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, bunch of great welterweights, maybe not matched up in the way that you would expect, you know, logically based on wins and losses. No, not not even close. And the 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 worst part of it is to me, it almost feels like they're taunting us by putting uh, uh, GSP and Diaz and Ellenberger and Hendricks all together on the same card because that really lets you know, hey, if we wanted to make the right fights, we could have. They're all available. They're all going to be here. You know, Ellenberger Diaz, awesome fight. Yeah. Totally would make sense. Uh, Hendricks, obviously the guy you want to see fight for the title next time. But now that we have entered this somewhat refreshing period in the new UFC where we are allowed to, I guess, just decide who the number one contender is without relying on supporting evidence and or facts, well, we'll just pick the guy that it seems like the most people want to watch. Well, here's the thing, too, that Dana White's explanation for this when pressed, like, hey, how come losing gets you a title shot in the new UFC? Uh, His explanation was, hey, the UFC didn't decide to put Nick Diaz in that fight. 
George St. Pierre did. Bullshit. Here's a guy. His explanation is, here's a guy who's done so much for the company. He never asked for anything. He asked for Nick Diaz. And so we felt like we couldn't tell him no. We felt like he deserved to be able to call his shot on this one. Uh, yeah, but then we're also going to blame it on him later. <laughs> we're also going to then try to force him into an Anderson Silva fight, which he clearly doesn't want. Uh, well, maybe, and maybe that's true. Maybe George St. Pierre did ask for this fight, but never before in the history of the UFC before, you know, this year have fighters ever had that kind of stroke. That's never been how it worked ever. And now suddenly it's, oh yeah, sure. We're going to let George pick this guy who just happens to be the most marketable guy that we could possibly have him fight right now. See, the, the thing is on principle, I object to this fight. I, I think it sets a bad precedent, and I think it sends a bad message about how you know things work in the UFC. Uh, at the same time, I have to be honest and admit to myself that I totally want to see this fight. That's why I feel like I can't get more worked up about the injustice of it all. Because, damn it, if I'm telling the truth here, I do want to see Nick Diaz and George St. Pierre. I do. Yeah, but that's weird because when they did this in the light heavyweight division, I thought that you were going to call out the National Guard. It seemed like you were ready to declare a state of national emergency in the in the light heavyweight division that, you know, now two middleweights were g- getting title shots and the whole world had gone crazy. And well, at least Nick Diaz is a real welterweight. Yeah, but I mean, he's he's... He's not any more deserving, is he, of a title well, shot right now? Well, this one is a little more defensible because at least it was a close decision against Carlos Condit. And a lot no, of people it are... Wasn't. <laughs> it was a close fight. No, it wasn't. Oh, come on. Now, now you're just being obstinate. Warm around like a hat. <laughs> Carlos Condit led Nick Diaz around the ring like he had him on a leash. Wow. Okay. Well, the thing is, like, okay, come on, you're going to say you don't want to see that fight? You don't want to see Nick Diaz and George St. Pierre? Uh, yeah, I do. I'll watch it, but I don't. I don't think it's going to be particularly fine fight. I don't think it's going to be particularly competitive. Okay, don't I, make me do this again. No, we just watched this. I, I we just watched this two weeks ago. I agree with you. If anything, the Benson Henderson Nate Diaz fight uh, shows us a a lightweight blueprint of the way this is going to go at welterweight, uh, possibly getting just a little messier on the Diaz end because uh, I do get the sense that. George St. Pierre really, you know, he normally wants to win, wants to get his hand raised and keep his title. I feel like he really wants to hold Nick Diaz down and elbow a hole in his face, uh, which only increases my anticipation uh, for this fight. Again, though, the the thing that bothers me, the thing that keeps me from just completely embracing this um, and getting really, truly jacked about it is, what are we saying to fighters, what are we saying to guys like Johnny Hendricks and to the fans of the sport? If you know losing gets you a title shot and knocking people out uh, means you got to wait until the, the you know a bigger money fight can happen first, and then you know hey if you win and then everything works out, then we'll talk. Yeah, I mean let's talk about Johnny Hendricks because he's the guy who I think more than anyone has the you know the 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 right to grab the Mike Gilbert Ival style and say, man, why I always getting fucked. That'd be awesome. Uh, in this situation, because he's certainly the guy who deserves it. He, he's certainly the number one contender at this point. He's probably the most dangerous guy on that entire list uh, you know, of, of contenders, especially for GSP. Yeah. You think he's a t- kind of a, yeah, he's the worst matchup of the list for, for St. Pierre. And yet, at the same time, when he did that thing where he said he wasn't going to fight again unless it was for a title, I kind of winced for him. Because I think he's right. 
I think that he is totally within his rights to say that, and and he's got a point. But man, you knew that wasn't going to go over well. No, because no. fighters don't get to pick their own fights in the UFC <laughs> unless they want to fight Nick Diaz. Yeah, well, and then now, so he's going to fight uh, Jake Ellenberger, who lost to Martin Katman recently, who mm-hmm. is the guy who Johnny Hendricks knocked out. Um, so, you know, if my understanding of the way things work now is correct, all Johnny Hendricks has to do to get a title shot is to lose to Jake Ellenberger, right? Yeah, and I then think that's immediate title shot. That is his best option at this point. Yeah, and let's 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 be clear. We know how things work in MMA. If he's going to lose a fight, it will be this one. <laughs> It'll be this one that he kind of got screwed and had to take. Although, it seems like an awesome fight, Ellenberger versus Hendricks, at least for the first it's, 10 minutes. Th- that's the thing that I keep coming back to when I look at these three welterweight matchups. And we can see why the UFC is doing the, them all in the same card. It really gives you some flexibility if Nick Diaz does some weird shit between now and March, which is so possible it borders on likely. Yeah, the best part of this is going to be the next three months where every day we <laughs> can check the internet and be like, do we know where Nick Diaz is? Yeah, has anyone heard from Nick? Has he injured himself in a throwing star accident? <laughs> uh so, yeah, there, we do have that option now that when you have all these welterweights, you can kind of mix and match them if some weird shit happens or if somebody just gets injured, you know. But then, and I still, as much as I want to complain about the, like, the ethic of the matchmaking, I look at the fights and I want to see those fights. It's, it makes me somehow matter at the UFC. Like, you know, damn it, you're, you're making me get excited about this stuff where I know the matchmaking angle of it is bullshit but i can't help myself yeah but i mean any of these four guys if you if you threw them in a bag and shook it up and 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 tossed them out there like any matchup would be awesome like i i would want to watch george st Pierre fight ellenberger even no, though you yeah sure, of course i would no, he's, he's another one of those guys who's kind of a bad matchup for gsp if you know he comes ready to fight the full time which is a problem that we've seen of his in the past kind of again and again no, you, you, you know, if we were sitting here talking about GSP Ellenberger, there'd be a vein bulging out of your forehead. You'd be so mad. Well, he well, yeah, he wouldn't deserve it, but he wouldn't deserve it for the same reasons as, as, as Diaz. But I'm just saying from a pure fighting standpoint, you kind of can't go wrong with any of them, any matchups between those four guys. That could be true. So here's like, another, I'm not going to get that jacked. Here's another angle. I feel like we haven't talked about. Obviously, we all want to see, I think, the GSP-Nick Diaz matchup at some point, right? I think that we would all be like, hey, well, Nick Diaz needed to get another win first or something and then get a shot at GSP. Maybe there's something to be said for the thought process that goes, who knows if Nick Diaz will even be present and accounted for this time next year? Who knows what the hell is going to happen with that guy? Uh, if he's going to retire again or go do triathlons full time or, you know, just like disappear off the face of the earth and, and grow weed uh, in, in Canada somewhere. Like, I mean, who knows? Who knows wh- where the future is going to take Nick Diaz? So maybe there's something to be said for making that fight while you still have your hands on the guy, while you can still get him there. Yeah, okay, I think that you just now have crafted the most compelling reason to book this fight. Yes! The most compelling reason being, we just don't know where Nick Diaz will be next year. you got to seize the day with Nick Diaz. (laughs) Who knows? Honestly, if I told you, if I, you know, looked into a crystal ball and was like, Chad, I can tell you with 100% certainty that a year from now, 
Nick Diaz will be living in Santa Cruz as the owner of a bike shop, never again to, to fight mixed martial arts. Would you find that hard to believe? No, I, I feel like you just came up with that off the top of your head, and yet it sounds weirdly credible. <laughs> like, I'm from the future. One of the, one of the things you could imagine Nick Diaz doing would be quitting the UFC and starting a bike shop. Yeah, somebody else would probably better uh, keep the books for the fight shop. Yeah, or the bike shop, and I maybe mean, deal yeah. with the front of the house too. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe him. He could be in the back. He could be the name on the on sign. The and, yeah, working on the bikes. You know, in a, a smoky room in the back, <laughs> listening to trance music or something. Oh God! All right, well, let's end this on a high note, focusing on the positives. I think that that wraps up our discussion of UFC 158 in round number four. We'll be back with the fifth and final round, which starts. Right now. Round five. Ben, if I had to wager, I would say that the the last ten days, a week, if you if you would, seem like the kind of weeks we're going to see more and more from the UFC as we move into the future. Uh, three shows in 10 days, you know, um, one that I think included a sort of a, a watered down main event in, in Soderopolis versus Pearson, one that included certainly an injury scrambled main event in Mitrione versus Nelson, uh, the announce the announcement of what you might call a nonsensical main event for UFC 158 and GSP Diaz, and, you know, two separate ultimate fighter finales that yielded not questionable results, but certainly we're not sure if, the, if, if, you know, contributing members of the UFC were produced. And so I guess to begin this more laid back and philosophical fifth round, I will simply ask, is that sustainable? Well, I would say it's not a good idea, but it does seem to be the direction we're headed. I, I keep hoping that we're going to go that direction for only so long until the UFC sees that, that this is the problem that this by oversaturating the market with events and tough franchises and all this stuff that they're watering down their own product. And the sheer number of shows is not only leading to weaker events, but it's also making it so that uh, more and more fans are, are feeling like the event fight night is not such a special thing anymore because it happens so often uh, and there's not enough punch in these things. I, I keep waiting for the UFC to realize, okay, this is what's hurting us. Let's pull it back a little bit. My concern is that because of their Fox deal, which they're so pleased with and so happy with, uh, they're tied into a certain number of events and they might not have that option even if they do realize that they're doing too many shows. Yeah, you would think if they if they didn't realize it this year, having looked at the the kind of hodgepodge that was 2012, that maybe they're not going to realize it at least and at least not acknowledge it publicly because there has been no sign, not that they would, but there has been no sign that any of the brass at the UFC see any of this as a problem except for the injury thing, which you know, they're content to continue to refer to as sort of a freak occurrence yeah even though 
hey, there's uh, Colton Smith getting the keys to his Harley, uh, <laughs> right, that, that he's going to totally act like he doesn't even see the guy from Harley Davidson standing there. Dude, that poor bastard yeah. Harley Davidson is going to stand there and kind of like nudge him like, hey, hey, come on, man. I'm trying to, I'm trying to I pay a lot of money for this. We're trying to do this thing here. I get maybe we're just expecting too much that the UFC would realize they're spreading the talent too thin and doing too many events after one year when after, you know, 20 years, they're still bringing people into the cage after a fight to try to do a presentation or something. <laughs> and man, the, 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 the pre the post fight interview with Joe Rogan is awkward enough. You're going to bring another guy in there. Yeah. A dude just jacked up on adrenaline and just won a huge fight is, is maybe not uh, the best pitch man. It, it's just, Something we should have learned. I, I agree. The thing, though, that, like, you talk about, did we just see this encapsulated, like, all the UFC's problems? I mean, I've, all I need is to hear that somebody got testosterone directly from the UFC to fight mm-hmm. on one of these cards. And, yeah, I'll be like, okay, there. Now it's complete. Uh, and some of those problems, you know, you can't, like, the, the injury stuff, like Shane Carwin gets hurt and pulls out because, you know, Shane Carwin seems to be getting on in years and getting a little more injury prone. You can't really blame the UFC for that necessarily. Uh, but, you know, so it's a, a combination of, you know, bad luck, but also, like, with some of the decisions they're making, they're putting themselves in a position to where you can't afford for anything to go wrong. Otherwise, shit goes from acceptable to, like, mediocre in a hurry. Yeah, and you mentioned the Fox deal earlier and whether or not, even if they wanted to scale back the number of events, of events if they would even have that option, which I think is kind of a scary but but solid point just because they're locked into this deal now um, that just seems to will have them on the hook for so many years of so many events that it's kind of like this is, is the, the, the new status quo, like this will be the way things are moving forward and that to me is certainly not a positive development because i think as we prepare to move into 2013 i i wouldn't hesitate to say that even though the the ufc has sort of reached its highest uh level in in terms of domination over the market and 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 you know maybe the uh the business side of things has has not been better for them but the sport does not feel as cool to me now as it did a few years ago. And I think it's because, as you were saying before, a lot of the fight nights don't feel as special as they used to because we get them so often. We get them, you know, three times in the last 10 days. And to me, that's a, a real problem as you move forward. Well, the one thing that the UFC could do uh, that's in its power to do is to scale back on the number of pay-per-view events. Like, if you are tied into so many Fox shows, if you take away some pay-per-views and you make the Fox shows feel more like pay-per-view quality events, which I think is what we saw with the last UFC on Fox event. I mean, that was a really good card. If you do that to where those are the big fight nights, you know, that the UFC on Fox, like network, big network shows are the ones that feel like, you know, huge mega events. Like then I think I think that would only be better. I mean, I, the, you get such a bigger audience for those because you're not asking people to pay 60 bucks for them. I mean, that, it's also kind of the problem where if you have so many shows on Fuel TV and FX and the prelims are all on, on Fuel TV and all that stuff, and then you're going to turn around and hit somebody up a couple weeks later saying, okay, now pay 60 bucks to see even more of it, you know, and you get then a smaller audience seeing what 
are the big important fights that are going to build your your fan base going forward. I feel like if they were willing to sacrifice a little bit of that short-term pay-per-view money and invest more into the Fox events, and I think Fox is putting pressure on them uh, to put more, you know, solid, huge, like important feeling fights on the, the big, big network events, then I think that's how you, you really grow this sport. I mean, I think that was why the Fox deal was exciting in the first place is because the idea that, you know, you could take a, like the heavyweight championship, put it on free TV and let 10 million people watch it. You know, that, that seems like what they should be doing in the first place. The, the problem is it seems like it's going to be difficult to serve two masters there uh, to do that many network shows and that many pay-per-view shows. You, you might have to make a, some hard choices there. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that we saw this last uh, Fox show, I thought it was a, it's a, it was a solid card and, and hopefully will be the kind of shows that, you, that we see them do for the network shows in the future. And the ratings bounce back for it too. So, I mean, it shows that you, you can get more people watching if you, if you put better fights on. Yeah. I would also like to see them stop siphoning off marketable fights to just for the sake of, of having you know, a Fuel TV main event honestly, because I know that one of the reasons, well, the main reason that Fox wants to put the UFC on, on fuel TV is to try to get more people to call up their cable companies and demand that they get fuel TV. But I feel like all of the people who are going to do that, like all of the people who are going to demand that their cable company expands to offer them fuel TV are all the kind of hardcore MMA fans that are going to watch those shows almost no matter what the fights are. You know, I don't think you're going to get too many casual guys who are the, so jacked that they have to have fuel TV. So I would like to, you know, it seems to me like a, like a redirection of the, of the marketing campaign f- or, you know, the, uh, a rethink on, on how they constitute those events. Because I don't know, like when you pull a fight like Bigfoot, Silva, Travis Brown out of what would otherwise be like the first fight on a pay-per-view and make it the main event on fuel, to me, it starts to feel like you're spreading the talent really, really thin, and I don't know that you're actually gaining anything by putting that fight on Fuel TV. Well, one of the things that I wonder about is when, whenever Dana White is approached about any of these criticisms of the UFC's business model, uh, it seems outwardly, at least, like he's not even willing to consider the possibility that the UFC could be doing some of those things differently. Yeah, uh, and that's that's one of the things that I think is scary about this situation. It's fuck you, don't watch it if you don't like it. Um, which, you know, I understand the, the sentiment that that comes from, but at the same time, you can't be the organization that listens to its fans if you're also telling people to fuck off all the time. Uh, every once in a while, some of those people are going to have valid points, especially if you keep hearing it over and over again. And, you know... I, I do feel weird every time I find myself complaining that there is too much free MMA on cable TV because I remember the days when, uh, you know, not too long ago when we were in grad school and we saw that ad for the first Ultimate Fighter and we were like, holy shit, could this be possible that there's actually going to be, you know, MMA every week on, on cable TV? It seems too good to be true. And, you know, or too bad to be true since it meant I was going to come over to your apartment and hang around. Yeah, uh, part of it did suck. <laughs> and then now here we are a few years later uh, being like, oh, there's, damn it, there's too much UFC on the TV. You know? Well, yeah, but that's because it's adversely affected the rest of the product. It has. Like, and there's no way to, to not acknowledge that unless you run the UFC. <laughs> yeah, and that is, that is what we come down to is I think that the UFC has gotten a little too... Uh, confident that the the brand name 
uh, means everything to fight fans. And that you can take any two guys, you know, put them in some spandex, like Matt Mitrione says, put a couple chiseled Adonises in spandex, uh, throw them out there, and as long as you have the UFC logo on the mat, um, people will be going nuts for it. And, you know, the, the UFC brand is still the most powerful brand in, in MMA, but the, the dudes fighting really make a huge difference. We really need to care about those guys and really want to see that fight in order for it to, to build up that big buzz. Just being a, a UFC fight night is not going to do it. Yeah. All right, well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here. This is the part of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not asked to defend or back up or or follow up in any way because at the end of the day, we are two guys in a room just saying stuff. And this week, I'm just saying that I think it's been conclusively proven that if before your fight, they show a scene of you sipping white wine in your fashionable <laughs> kitchen with your fashionable girlfriend, you're going to lose the fight. <laughs> I mean, you will look cool for the, you know, you'll, you'll look like a Stalin motherfucker before you lose. I'm just saying. Just saying. I'm just saying that after Toothpick Gate, if UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson does not have his own branded line of toothpicks out on the market within six months, he is being mismanaged. Yeah, that's a huge miss. Doing that man a disservice if you don't sign a toothpick endorsement deal right fucking now. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Well, that's the show for this week. We promise we'll be back next week. Uh, But for now, that's the show. We're done. We're through. We're out. How about tough Gibraltar Uh versus tough People's Republic of Northern Ireland? (laughs) Wow, okay. Well, the latter I would watch. That (laughs) sounds like a hell of a show. Uh, Tough Congo, I don't know. No? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, how about like tough Syria versus tough 